Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. The rivers and streams of the southeastern United States feature astounding biodiversity, warranting the nickname of underwater rainforests of life. From the colorful tangerine darter to the charismatic river chub and the prehistoric sturgeon, you can find a little bit of everything in our waterways. Yet we also know these species are threatened by the regular culprits of water pollution, habitat alteration, invasive species, and overfishing. In this episode of River Talks, we explore the stories of these underwater rainforests with Dr. Anna George, the Vice President of Conservation Science and Education at the Tennessee Aquarium. The Tennessee Aquarium connects people to nature with a particular focus on celebrating, preserving, and restoring biodiversity in the Southeast. Well, welcome, Dr. Anna George, to the River Talks podcast. We are so excited to have you here today to talk about the work of the Tennessee Aquarium, the work that you all do, and just the amazing biodiversity that we have here in the Southeast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here today. Yeah. So as the Vice President of Conservation Science and Education at the Aquarium, I know you have a role in a lot of the different work that you do. So could you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Tennessee Aquarium and then also the work that you all do with the Conservation Institute? Absolutely. And yeah, I laugh at my long title sometimes. Um, So I've been at the Tennessee Aquarium for 15 years now. It's been an incredible home. Um, And this is a place that I first visited when I was in middle school, I think a year after the aquarium first opened. Um, We are celebrating our 30th anniversary next year. So that'll give you just, you know, some of you out there a little clue as to how old we actually are or how old I am. Tennessee Aquarium, it's always been part of my heart here in the Southeast because we really are focused on what's going on in our backyards in the Southeast. And that's something that often gets overlooked, I think. I mean, I know when I was in school, I studied a lot about the coral reefs. I went to Australia for six months. You know, we hear about the rainforests and those are really important places, but it gets kind of easy sometimes to overlook just how important the Southeastern US is. And we're here, we're living here. We think, oh yeah, that's that's something that everyone knows about. You know, of course we've got rivers and streams and they're pretty, but they don't realize actually that there is global significance to the Southeastern United States. So the amount of freshwater animals that we have in the rivers and streams of the Southeastern US is globally important. And that's something that I love that the Tennessee Aquarium was established here in Chattanooga, that we can celebrate that, that we can display those animals, help people learn a little bit more about what's going on underwater, but then also protect them as well. So to me, one of the most important things that the aquarium does is just raise that basic awareness that, hey, wherever you are in the Southeast, there's a lot of life that's living all around you. And a lot of that is hidden from us underwater. Now, also amazingly, the aquarium has had a long history working to protect those animals. Um, And so it's been an honor to me to get to take part in that. This is a place, you know, I mentioned I first came here in middle school. When I was a graduate student, I started at the University of Alabama, and we would take our classes here on field trips, our undergraduate students here, because we wanted them to see the animals and understand the research that was going on here. So getting a chance to take part in that myself has really been an amazing dream come true, because it is important that we know 
no, we're not just displaying and celebrating these animals, but we are working to protect them as well. And as we'll talk about a lot today, learning how to protect freshwater animals is not easy. That's a big challenge that's ahead of us. So it's exciting that not only are we doing that in our backyard, but we're studying that and trying to get better at our conservation science with every project we take on. Yeah, I love the way that you all combine that education with the research because it does, it, it, it's such a powerful way for people to understand what we're actually doing to protect these species when they see them in aquarium and then they learn about the work that you all are actually doing and working with partners across the Southeast. I think it makes that story come alive. And every time I go to the aquarium, I just love that aspect of the way that you connect, you know, the research to the public. And in presentations that I've seen you do before, you have described uh, the Southeast as having these underwater rainforests of biodiversity, which is a phrase I have co-opted sometimes in Excellent. presentation. Excellent. Like, this is what we've got. <laughs> Other people say this. And so I love that phrase. And so you talked a little bit about how globally you know, important this area is. You know, what makes our area so unique when it comes to freshwater biodiversity? And why do we see the biodiversity that we see? Yeah, so the phrase underwater rainforest actually showed up in the New York Times about a year ago in one of Margaret Rankle's columns. And I was like, oh man, this phrase really is taking off. Um, so I love it when I see other people using that because I think it is a simple way to understand what's going on. So when we think about the animals that live in the rivers and streams of the US, Southeastern US, there's not like the major megafauna that we think of with the oceans. You know, we don't have whales or dolphins or sharks, of course. We have a lot of little things. And so at first it might might be easy for people to be like, oh yeah, that's just bait fish, whatever. But the more you actually learn about the little things, the more fascinating they seem. So to zoom out for a second and use a lot of scientific numbers here, you know, we can look at the Cumberland, the Tennessee, and the Mobile River drainages. And those are three of the hotspots that we're going to talk about each of those today. And so that's kind of stretching from Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, a lot of neighboring states as well. Those three drainages are about one and a half percent of the land area of North America. So our entire continent, if you look at the land area covered by those watersheds, we're talking about one and a half percent, but they contain almost half of the freshwater fish species that are known from North America. So around 400 fish species live in one of those three drainages, which is just an incredible number when you think about it, that it's this tiny little bit of land, but we have so many different types of species. And so a lot of it is just trying to figure out still at a very basic level, what do we have in our backyard and, and what are they doing? And so it's things like river chubs, which are these minnow They're you know, I'd say minnow and most people think, okay, great, three inches long and gray fascinating. But instead, you start to watch a river chub. These fish can get 10, 12 inches. They, the male river chubs actually build nests. So they use their mouth to pick up rocks on the bottoms of streams, and they will pile those rocks into these big rock nests that are anywhere from two to three foot in diameter. And so that's what they'd use to entice the female river chubs in to lay their eggs there. They're saying, hey, I'm a strong enough male that I could build this nest and I can defend it. And so you should lay your eggs with me. Not only the female river chubs though, but around 20 other species of fish also use those nests to spawn and lay their eggs in as well because they're being protected by those river chubs. And so it's stories like this that we're just starting to scratch the surface and understand like, okay, this is actually a really important species to have in the Southeast because they're helping all these other species to make sure that they can spawn. And when you actually see a fish picking up a rock with his mouth and the rock is the size of his head, you start to get a little more impressed at what this, you know, 12 inch fish can do and what they're, 
what engineering they're doing underwater here. These are things that, you know, if we're hiking in the Cherokee National Forest along some of the smaller creeks where they live and the water is clear, you can actually see them from the surface of the water. We'll actually take binoculars with us sometimes. And you can watch the spawning activity that's happening on those nests as you're standing on the side of the stream. So that's just the river chub. There's all sorts of other fish, all sorts of incredible other species out there that the more we, more chances we get to snorkel in the water, to, like I said, fish watch with our binoculars, you start to see their behaviors. And as you start to understand the fish behaviors, they really come alive to you. And so it's not just saying like, oh, okay, great. There's 185 species of darters. They're all really colorful. That's nice. But then you start to get to kind of know them. And you know that, you know, we've got tangerine darters in East Tennessee. They're only found in the Upper Tennessee River. They get to six inches long. They have beautiful bright orange bellies. And when we're snorkeling in the stream with tangerine darters, they just come right up to you. I mean, they we joke that they're the dolphins of the freshwater that we have here because they're so charismatic. They're so interested in what you're doing. They're so curious that they're just like, oh, hey, what are you doing today? How, how are you doing? Can I come see? Can I follow around? And that, you know, you're stirring up stuff on the bottom of streams. And so they're trying to eat the insects that you're stirring up. So again, a lot of these things that, you know, you may just think, oh, that's nice and passing. But as you spend a little time, as you actually get out and enjoy some of these, you know, eco activities here in our backyard, and you find out, hey, I don't have to fly to Costa Rica. There's a lot I can do right here, which, you know, in the past year and a half of the pandemic has been really good to know that there's still a lot of things we can discover in our own backyard when we are focusing our attention a little closer to home. Yeah, I love the way that animal behavior kind of gets you excited about some of these species that when you look at them, you know, they aren't as exciting. And I remember when I was in graduate school, I taught uh, uh, undergraduate animal behavior class. And so they um, got to do a project and a lot of the students learned about the bower bird that makes these intricate nests to attract a mate, which are amazing. And of course they're very cool. But as you were describing what the chub do in these streams and rivers, it's pretty much the same thing, but it maybe didn't get featured on planet earth. And so, you know, it didn't have that sort of appeal, but it's got the same really interesting behavior really, you know, curious as to why you start thinking about all of these things. And there's just, you can really dive into sort of the, the evolution and the ecology of just that one behavior and that one fish in one area of the Southeast. I know. And I, I love bowerbirds. They are amazing. But I often joke that fish just need a better, like, press agent or publicity agent, like they just haven't quite gotten the attention that they deserve. And I think that's, you know, if I try to sum up my role at the Tennessee Aquarium, it's that I'm like, I try to be the Lorax for the fish, you know, <laughs> I just want to speak for them. So that other people understand what's going on and realize like, oh, yeah, these are pretty amazing, too. And so, you know, you've got all the bird watching organizations and not to say those shouldn't exist, just saying, we should have those for fish too, you know, like all, all the snorkeling and rivers that started up in the area is really exciting to me because we've had the Jacques Cousteau of the ocean and we're just now starting to get that for fresh water so that we understand how vibrant our rivers and streams are too. I like to use the hellbender a lot as sort of our way to talk about biodiversity because it's got a cool name. It's, you know, it's got, it's funny looking, it's interesting. So you kind of, I always start with that and then go, look at this freshwater mussel, you know, that is not as exciting, but let's talk about that now. So I think it's a fun way to find like, what is that, that charismatic fauna that we're going to get people excited about 
Yeah, and hellbenders, hellbenders are one of those, they're so ugly that they're adorable at this point. Um, so they're doing pretty well in that regard. But muscles, I mean, I'm glad you brought up muscles because muscles are actually my go-to when I'm trying to convince someone from an economic standpoint that the diversity of the Southeast is important. Muscles, yeah, we joke. They look like a rock with snot, you know, big deal. It's a clam, <laughs> whatever. You have, I've heard it all. Um, but at the same time, mussels are filtering our fresh water for us. So they are a pre-treatment of our water before it ever hits any sort of drinking water plant. And so if we don't have the mussels doing that pre-treatment, it gets way more expensive down the line in our water bills. And you may say, okay, well, how expensive is that? There was a study from Oklahoma that in a drought, they lost the mussels in the river. And the next year they had millions of dollars more at the drinking water plant in costs because they didn't have the pre-treatment. The only thing that had changed was the loss of mussels from the river. So if I am trying to make an economic argument for someone, mussels are my go-to. Um, if I'm trying to make a, it's cool, it's fascinating, definitely start with a hellbender, start with a river chub, a tangerine darter, because we all have different things that we value in our life. But you know, the thing I love about the rivers and streams of the Southeast is there's, there's truly something for everyone there. There's something valuable for everyone. It just depends on what your interest is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. Figuring out what people are interested and then finding the right animal to get them excited about biodiversity. <laughs> There's an app for that. There's an animal for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and one of the, the animals that I think about a lot when I think about the Tennessee Aquarium and the work that you all have done is the sturgeon. And I think that is kind of another example of something that maybe is a little bit more part of the public conscious because it is this very interesting and kind of cool looking animal. Um, so what are, what are some of the projects that you all have done in the past on the sturgeon and uh, sturgeon reintroduction? And why was that important? And what's kind of on the horizon for you in there? Uh, I love talking about sturgeon. So thank you for that. So <laughs> we are glad that sturgeon is one of the animals you associate with us. Um, so sturgeon or lake sturgeon are one of the species of sturgeon that was native to Tennessee. Um, they were in the Tennessee River, the Cumberland River, until about the 1960s to 1970s. Now sturgeon are large fish. If you've never seen one before, go look one up. It looks about as close to a dinosaur as you can look and still be a fish. They have these bony plates along their sides. They've got the barbels that they use under their, their snout in order to help them find food. Um, the, the barbels are kind of like a sense of taste and smell all in one. And sturgeon were also pretty economically valuable fish. So sturgeon all around the world are still fished for caviar. Um, and that's a whole nother, you know, we could talk for a podcast just about sturgeon and caviar and, and that whole market. But sturgeon also, you know, they're one of the fish that I think people think they have a face. Like they, they really just are three-dimensional in a way that some fish aren't. And people are really attracted to sturgeon. I mean, like I said, they look like dinosaurs. They Lake sturgeon live longer than any other fish in North America. They can live over 150 years old. So very much like a human lifespan. Unfortunately, sturgeon were lost from the Southeast in the you know, period from the 1930s to 1960s, a lot of things went wrong. And so there was very poor water quality in the area. This is before the Clean Water Act was passed. Um, there was a large construction of dams throughout all of our rivers trying to get more power generation. And at that time, dams weren't really constructed with any sort of environmental impacts in mind. It was more just about, here's what we need as humans, and we're not thinking about how to operate them as, as we do these days. Um, and in addition, there was a lot of fishing for sturgeon. As I mentioned, they were economic 
economically valuable. There was a lot of harvest of the meat, even before the 1930s sturgeon, um, before people realized they tasted so good, quite honestly, fishermen didn't like them because those scutes would rip up their nets. And so they would actually stack them on the side of rivers. They were actually burned as firewood to operate some steamboats back in the 1800s. Um, so there's just been heavy fishing of sturgeon. The other thing I'll say for sturgeon, they live a long time, but their reproductive strategy means that females are only spawning every three to five years. And when you have a situation like that, it can be pretty easy to overfish something. And so all of these impacts combined meant that we lost sturgeon from the Southeast in the 1960s to 1970s. Now, the good news is some things changed. There's a lot of good news for us to talk about today. One of those is the Clean Water Act got passed. Um, another is that TVA changed the operation of some of its dams through the Reservoir Release Improvement Program. And so they started guaranteeing minimum flows of water and they started oxygenating the water as they released it. That program was implemented in part because of the snail darter, which is another fish we'll probably talk about today. But with those things together, the river started improving, especially below some of the dams. And a group of biologists got together and said, you know what, I think we might be able to bring Lake Sturgeon back to Tennessee because they were actually doing well still up in the northern part of their range in Wisconsin and Great Lakes drainages. And so they said, there's an opportunity here. And so for a long time, we've known about fish hatcheries where we could raise fish in human care and release them for fishing opportunities to try to augment populations. But it really just started in the 1980s where people started thinking, hey, we could use this hatchery concept to actually restore endangered species back to parts of their native range where they've been lost. And so a huge group of partners came together to embark on this for Lake Sturgeon here in Tennessee. And the aquarium was one of those original partners that we have a lot of experience with. Hey, we, we like to keep fish alive in order to display them for people. So what if we took that a step further and we started spotting them in human care so that we could release them back to the wild and restore them their native range. So this program started in 1998. The first group of biologists went up to Wisconsin. They saw the lake sturgeon spawn in Wisconsin, um, and they were able to get fertilized eggs from those. They were brought back to Chattanooga. We raised them for two years. They were released with radio telemetry, um, and some students from the University of Tennessee actually followed them around on the river for six months and said, okay, this is going to work. They're doing pretty well. They're moving. They're clearly not just dying on the bottom of the river, as depressing as that sounds, but they were doing fine. And so starting in 2000, we started major releases where almost every year, except for last year, um, for 20, over 20 years now, we've been able to release around 14,000 lake sturgeon every year back into the river. What that means is over the past 21 years, we've restored over a quarter million lake sturgeon to the southeast. That's the Tennessee Aquarium. There's several other U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service hatcheries that raise them as well. Um, and sometimes other groups get involved when they're able to. TWRA has some facilities that help out when they can. And so we see lake sturgeon back in the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers now as part of this effort. Georgia has followed suit, so the Mobile system, um, the Coosa River in Georgia and Alabama has some lake sturgeon that have been restored as well. So that's been one of the things, you know, when I started, I said I'd been here 15 years, I started in 2006. And we, you know, that was only six years into the program. And when we would go out on monitoring week, we would celebrate if we caught a single lake sturgeon. I mean, that was a, a week of trying to catch lake sturgeon. And if we caught one, we'd have a party. These days, we go to some of the same sites. We can easily catch 70 to 80 lake sturgeon at some of those same sites. So we're really seeing their numbers start to rebound. We have a lot of anglers who will catch them. Um, it is illegal to keep a lake sturgeon in Tennessee since we're still working to restore them. But at the same 
same time, if you take a picture of yourself with a lake sturgeon and you send it into TWRA, you get a certificate of appreciation. And we've had over 600 reports of anglers catching and releasing lake sturgeon back in Tennessee now. So really exciting to see where this project started and where it's gone over the past 20 years. We are still waiting. You know, the final measure of success, of course, is people want to know, well, are they spotting on their own in the rivers at this point? Like, are they a self-sustaining population? The answer is not yet. However, lake sturgeon don't reach sexual maturity until they're anywhere from 17 to 25. So a lot like a human lifespan. Oldest sturgeon in the river are just now getting to that point. So we were up in Wisconsin in, in April. We got to see it really watching that it was the 50-year-old lake sturgeon that were the biggest spawners, that they have the most eggs. And so it's sobering. We knew this was going to be a long-term investment to restore this species back to Tennessee. We were hoping it was a 25-year program. And you know we're going to have done a lot in 25 years. We're going to be watching for spawning. But we know that it could be a long time. And, and that's just what conservation is all about, is having a group of partners that are working together and that we're patient. You know, these things degraded over a long time. I talk about we lost sturgeon from the 1930s to the 1960s. So maybe what that means is that we gain sturgeon back from 2000 to 2030. And that's certainly a story that I'm happy to tell is that these things don't change overnight in one direction or the other. And so a lot of conservation is patience. It's a long-term investment, but it is great to know that it does pay off, that we can restore things that were degraded. That's a great story. And just the way that you all have been working at that and the length of time it's going to take to restore those populations. But like you said, that's a lot of what, what conservation is. And so celebrating the smaller wins along the way and saying, hey, we released this many this year. We, we saw this picture. Someone caught one in this area and really valuing those small wins for conservation, I think, are so important to kind of keeping the momentum from the science perspective and also from the public perspective that they can see that this is working, that this is moving forward. And the sturgeon are just, you know, one of the species that you all have worked on. And I know over the past year, you know, it's been a difficult year and a half to probably do many of these projects, but you've done some work as well with the Appalachian brook trout and the Barron's top minnow. Could you talk about some of the work that you've done with those species? So, so yeah, there's a lot of other species that we work on, Barron's top minnows, Southern Appalachian brook trout. The Barron's top minnow is a project that we started around the same time as the lake sturgeon. Now, lake sturgeon, I've just mentioned, they're super charismatic. People really kind of identify with them. Barron's top minnows are almost the exact opposite. They're a small fish. The males have this beautiful green coloration. They're only found in three counties in central Tennessee, so not wide ranging. They're found in springs, so kind of a same calm habitat where the groundwater is upwelling. You get very consistent temperatures. Um, but there's no economic value to a Barron's top minnow. You know, it's not like a sturgeon where there's a commercial fishery for it. And so Barron's top minnows, like I said, they're at the almost opposite end of the spectrum. If I have to convince someone who's not really conservation inclined why you should protect a fish, the Barron's top minnows is not necessarily the one I go to right off the bat. Now, as I've mentioned, they are found in springs. These springs in the groundwater are really good indicators of what's going on for water quality for Tennessee, because we do rely on groundwater for additional drinking water. And in the area where they're found, this is a heavy agriculture area. So this is an area where there's a lot of nurseries and they need that consistent groundwater to help the plants thrive as well. Unfortunately, through a series of droughts, um, through heavy irrigation, the groundwater was actually drying up. And that's scary when you start to lose your water from aquifers. 
And so for Barron's top minnows, that means a situation that was not good. In addition, there was an invasive fish, the mosquito fish, that's been widely introduced because with a name like mosquito fish, people thought, oh, they must eat mosquito larvae, so that would be good. Actually, mosquito fish eat Barron's top minnows and Barron's top minnows eat mosquito larvae. So it was not an ideal situation for anyone, not for the Barron's top minnows and not for the, well, not for humans who wanted to control mosquito populations. The mosquitoes loved the situation. So we ended up in the, in the 2000s where Barron's top minnows were rapidly disappearing from their range. And so we thought similarly to the sturgeon, hey, this is a case where we could actually work to try to raise some of these smaller fish. The good thing about Barron's top minnows is that they take very well to aquarium tanks. Um, we can create a habitat for them in human care that is very similar to what they would have in the wild. They're small fish. So it was pretty easy for us to learn the techniques to raise Barron's top minnows. The bad news in all this is that we are discovering over the past 20 years that everywhere that Barron's top minnows are, mosquito fish are not. And the moment mosquito fish end up back into a Barron's top minnow spring, we lose our Barron's top minnows. And that was really disheartening because this is a project where we had been working to try to keep the Barron's top minnows from becoming more endangered. And instead what we found is that yes, we know a lot, we can raise them successfully, we can release them successfully, but if anything happens that mosquito fish get in, and by anything happening, I mean things like floods that Nashville has been affected by, mean that any sort of barriers that were put into place were overtopped with the water and the mosquito fish could just zip their way back into those springs where the Barron's top minnow live. So we're shifting our perspective on this. Unfortunately, Barron's top minnows had to be protected as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. So we're shifting our mindset to saying this may not be a situation that we can step away from. On the other side, though, I can tell you that we can keep this species alive. We can keep it from going extinct. We know the way to do that. And so that's where we've shifted our, our management is into more how do we prevent extinction for this species in order to you know, keep it going along until one day we're going to learn enough to be able to keep mosquito fish out of these habitats and to switch the situation around. But it is not something like the lake sturgeon where I feel more confident like, hey, at some point we're gonna be able to walk away from this knowing that we have restored the species. Instead, what we're doing is shifting to say, we're gonna manage the situation until science can catch up with us and we can find ways to eradicate mosquito fish from these places where they really shouldn't be. So Southern Appalachian brook trout, man, I talk a lot about fish. Sorry, I'm so wordy. Southern Appalachian brook trout, they um, are beautiful species. They're found stretching from Canada all the way down to Georgia along the Appalachians. But here in the Southeast, our brook trout are a little bit different than what you would see in the Northern parts of the range. So there are genetic differences, but even more surprisingly for the Southeast is almost every single stream in the Southeastern US has a brook trout with a unique genetic signature. And so what that means is that if you were to just hand me a little vial of DNA from a, a trout fin, and I were to actually sequence that, and we won't get into the technicalities on how that happens, but if I were to sequence that DNA, I could basically tell you where that trout came from, that they are that specific to individual streams. And so that, I'm a geneticist, if you can't tell, that's my nerdy background. Um, that to me was really intriguing, that I was like, oh, this is a cool conservation challenge because we know a lot about how it's important to try to increase genetic diversity. And we do a lot of work when we manage these reintroduction programs to make sure that we are capturing that because it's not enough to just release a whole bunch of individuals. We need a genetically diverse component of individuals that we release. But if you're working on something like the brook trout, where every single stream is differentiated, that to me is a fun problem. That's how do we 
you know, capture that and save it for the future because we don't know why they're so differentiated, but we know it matters because it wouldn't exist if it wasn't important to that species. So we started working, oh, probably about 10 years ago at this point, trying to raise Southern Appalachian brook trout in human care that had been done very limited. There was a lot of examples on how to raise Northern strain brook trout, and they've actually been shipped all around the world. There's brook trout out in the Western US that are considered invasive. There's brook trout in other parts of the world that are considered invasive. But here in the South, no one had raised our specific Southern Appalachian brook trout. So TWRA at their Teleco hatchery started working on this problem. We did as well. We learned that you can raise Southern Appalachian brook trout. Um, it's a, a fun, different challenge. We actually spawn them in the fall in our hatcheries, which is times out with what they do in the wild. So it's, it's actually brook trout spawning season right now. Um, and so the eggs are adorable because after a little while, you'll actually see the two little black eyes develop in the eggs. And that's the eyed up stage of the eggs. And then they will eventually hatch out. And so we've been um, restoring brook trout working just stream by stream. This isn't something I mentioned their genetics are unique. So this isn't something where we just have a group of fish that we spawn over and over and just Johnny Appleseed them all over the South. Instead, we work stream by stream and try to choose a population that is closest to where that population um, is headed back into the wild. What's fun though, is that this is working. It is a lot faster success because brook trout don't live as long as something like the lake sturgeon. So they actually start spawning around two to three years of age. So we've had a few streams where we've actually been able to say, hey, we've released brook trout and they are back spawning on their own in the wild. So that's always really exciting for us to see. Again, those small successes on the way. Ultimate goal is a lot more streams with brook trout in them, but at least we can check ones off of our list as we go. Yeah, all three of those stories, the sturgeon, the baron's top minnow, and then the brook trout, they're all so different, which I love when you think about, okay, how are we going to address all of the you know conservation needs? There's so many different life histories and genetics that you have to take into consideration. And when we think about biodiversity, I think we typically think about biodiversity at the, the species level or even you know at the genus level, but there's also genetic biodiversity and how diverse are these different animals. So you have things like lake surgeon that maybe have a little bit, you know, we can, they've got broader range and then you've got this brook trout, which is a very distinct kind of genetic diversity within these small streams. And so you really have to you know, look at the different levels. And I think it um, reiterates the importance of people who are naturalists, people who know these species and then can get that information because there's so much to know. And so um, just valuing those people who have that knowledge about one single species is, is sometimes hard to understand until you see it in action like this. I, I will say we definitely picked different species on purpose. So we like having the challenges of let's learn something completely new by having a fish that's completely different than what we've worked with before and different habitats. You'll notice we've talked about sturgeon in the large rivers. We've talked about Barron's top minnows in springs. We've talked about brook trout that live in small headwater streams and 70% of the river miles in the southeastern U.S. are those headwater streams. And so it's really important that we understand all these different habitat types and the needs of the fish that live in them. Because when we talk about rivers, a lot of people, I think, have this conception of, oh, that's just a single thing. And instead, there's all this habitat diversity in our fresh water, which is part of what makes it so difficult to conserve. Yeah. And so zooming out and thinking about, well, how do we build conservation plans across the Southeast? And I know that this is work that you all are also doing in terms of looking at individual species and then kind of looking up at more of the landscape scale. Could you talk about some of the work you're doing to develop those conservation plans and how 
and why that work is important to this conversation? Yeah, so several years ago, we received funding from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation um, with our partners at the University of Georgia uh, in the River Basin Center there. And so the question posed to us by the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was, okay, you all say the Southeast is important, but if, you know, limited amount of funding in the world, if we could only spend our funding on a few places, where are the places that really matter? Where's the most important spots to protect? And we're like, oh, that's a good question. So we addressed this looking at a particular uh, size. And so this is going to get a little nerdy scientific, so I apologize about that. But um, in the Southeast, we divide up our watersheds, well, in the whole world, watersheds are divided up into these hydrologic unit codes. And this has been, you know, set up by the USGS, by government agencies. And so it's a way to really classify our watersheds. So we worked at a certain scale. Um, they're called a HUC 8, hydrologic unit code 8, um, but it's really just trying to get a consistent size that we could compare different parts of the southeast to each other using this consistent size. So in the southeast, that's around 290, and this was looking east of the Mississippi River, south of, you know, around West Virginia, Virginia, um, into the panhandle of Florida, but not too far into the peninsula of Florida because things get different down there biologically. Um, and so that was kind of the area we were looking at. And we looked at all species of fish, mussels, and crayfish that were found in those 290 watersheds in the southeast. And so we mapped out all the records for that were ever known. So this is looking at different museums and looking at government reports and things like that for over a thousand different species of fish, mussels, and crayfish. And we basically wanted to know for those watersheds, how many unique species were there in any particular watershed? So if one of them had maybe only, I don't know, a hundred species of fish, mussels, and crayfish, but another one had 300 different species of fish, mussel, or crayfish, I'm probably exaggerating there in that 300. We also looked at a measure that's called endemism, which means, you know, how restricted are those species geographically. And so if you've got a species that's only found in a single watershed, that watershed is going to be a little more important because if you protect that watershed, you've protected the entire species of the fish versus if all the species that were found in that watershed are found somewhere else, it may not actually be considered as important because it doesn't contain a unique population there. So we had a scale that we used for that. We also looked at imperilment. So we said, okay, does this watershed have 10 species of fish that are protected under the Endangered Species Act? Does it have 20 fish, mussel, crayfish? You know, so we looked at those as well. And we looked for biological imperilment um, because sometimes the Endangered Species Act doesn't quite catch up to what we know in, in the science world. So we looked at those three different areas for, like I said, over a thousand species of fish, mussel, and crayfish. We mapped that out for 290 watersheds of the Southeast. And we were actually pretty stunned. So we always knew that the, the Mobile, the Tennessee, and the Cumberland drainages, you notice me talking about those a lot, we'd always known that those river drainages were really important. We didn't realize how important they were. So we ranked those 290 watersheds, those three drainages, and also including the Green River in Kentucky, it took around, I don't know, 40 or so spots in our ranking before we left those four watersheds. So what that means is the top 40 watersheds to protect diversity in the Southeast occur in the Mobile, the Tennessee, the Cumberland, or the Green. So there's this core heart of the Southeast stretching from Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, where you would just see really extreme importance for protecting biodiversity. Now there's another few river drainages that are not in those that we know we've heard of. Um, you've probably heard of the, the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint. Um, if you've ever 
gotten near Atlanta, you've heard about the water wars that's going on with those systems. That is an extremely important spot. The Savannah River is one of the most important Atlantic coast drainages. Um, the Pascagoula on the Gulf Coast as well, extremely important. So I don't want to imply that there's not other spots in the Southeast that equally, equally deserve protection. But if we just ranked for sheer biodiversity, Tennessee, Cumberland, Mobile, and the green. It's just shocking to us how important those were. The other nice thing about the way we did this ranking system, though, is if you live in any of those states, you could really recalibrate all of this and say, hey, what are the most important drainages of South Carolina? What are the most important drainages of North Carolina? So it was a really nice way to just look at this data across the region and start to see what are some important spots we should be protecting. For us at the Tennessee Aquarium, it actually revealed a few things. The top one and top two watersheds that we found were in the middle Tennessee River in Alabama, actually. So when we think of uh, Pickwick and Wheeler Reservoirs, a lot of people think, oh, those are reservoirs. Okay, whatever. But there's actually a lot of springs. There's streams that feed into them. There were big fish that were found in those areas in the bigger river. So a lot of different freshwater habitat types. And we realized we didn't have any ongoing projects in those areas. You know, we know our lake sturgeon are swimming through there at some point. But it really brought home to us, there's different ways to look at our data across the Southeast. And there's some really really incredible spots we need to be drawing attention to and protecting. And so it was a really fun way to analyze this data, to think about our own prioritization for how we protect things and to help others make good decisions as well. Yeah. And I can speak from the compact, you know, we use that type of approach when we're thinking about where we want to do a restoration project. You know, we're not just looking at, well, where is there a stream that's degraded, but where is it in protecting a vital habitat, what types of species are there? How does it connect to climate resilient landscape? Like we really look at all these different layers of data to understand where, you know, like you were saying, we have limited time, we have limited resources. Of course, if we could, we would go everywhere and do everything. But if we can't go everywhere and do everything, what can we focus on? And so I think that that data and that map, um, you know, when you see that bright red and you realize that, you know, Nashville and Chattanooga is right in the heart of that bright red, it really, sends the message home to what, what we're seeing in this area. You know, with all of this work, we always hear some good news and some bad news when we think about conservation. So, um, and especially endangered species in our area. So we had sort of two things kind of happen around the same time. We had the removal of the snail darter from the endangered species list due to recovery, which was great. You know, a little bit after that, we had the delisting of 23 species, and this was across the U.S., um, due to extinction, and that included eight species of freshwater mussels that were only found in the southeastern area. So how do you kind of look at these two different uh, stories of um, what is happening with our endangered species, and what does that tell us about the future of biodiversity in our region? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it has been a bit of whiplash. If you were following the endangered species news in that time period, you were like, wait, what? I thought we just had good news. Um, so the snail darter was a pretty incredible story. A lot of people know about the snail darter because they were one of the first key tests of the Endangered Species Act. And it was really um, a, a fight for a long time over the construction of Teleco Dam. And would that construction, if it were complete, would it cause the extinction of the snail darter? The snail darter at the time was only known from the Little Tennessee River where the Teleco Dam was being completed. The Endangered Species Act said cost-benefit analysis does not apply here. If the species deserves protection, it does not matter 
how much money has already been spent on a project that species deserves protection. And so this went all the way to the Supreme Court. And I think it's pretty easy for us to think like, oh, you know, these things happened a long time ago. Does it matter? Well, Supreme Court cases definitely matter. That sets a precedent. And so the precedent was set. It was very strong precedent that the Teleco Dam could not be completed as long as the snail darter was there and was jeopardized by the project because it was protected under the Endangered Species Act. Well, you may be saying to yourself, but the Teleco Dam was completed. And it was completed because Congress actually uh, over... Uh, passed a budget writer that authorized construction of the Teleco Dam, authorized the funds to be complete, and it basically said we are overriding the Endangered Species Act in this particular instance. And so that overruled the Supreme Court decision when Congress passes legislation that changes what the decision was on the law based at the time. But the good news is, though, that that was just a single overrule. It did not actually change the Endangered Species Act. So cost benefit does not matter for the Endangered Species Act. What this also means, though, is there was a lot of work on snail darters at that time period, and they were actually moved to other places to try to get them out of jeopardy from the Teleco Dam. And they seem to have done just fine where they were moved. So we now see snail darters in a lot of different upper Tennessee and a few middle Tennessee drainages as well. And over time, as they've been studied, um, we've seen things improve for them. The, the water quality has improved in some of those rivers. The TVA's Reservoir Release Improvement Program, which we talked about for Lake Sturgeon, was implemented in part to improve things for the snail darter. And the first dam where that was implemented, Douglas Dam on the French Broad River, right where we release Lake Sturgeon, snail darter populations are booming right there on the French Broad. So we, we can snorkel at that site and see snail darters there. So it is a bit of good news um, in terms of this was a really a, a key stone species for the protection of the Endangered Species Act. A lot has been learned about freshwater conservation in the southeast because of work that had to be done with the snail darter. Um, with TVA's operation of their dams, all of those things together means that yes, we have seen the snail darter recover in the southeast. So they were delisted successfully. And those are always really cool moments when you see a species delisted due to recovery. Now you also see those where they're delisted due to extinction. And that's um, obviously not a happy moment for anyone. Extinction is a tough process to, to call. Um, it's, it's difficult, you know, it's easy if you catch a fish, you can say, I know they are here. But if you don't catch a species, that doesn't mean that they're not there. It could mean a number of things. It could mean Maybe you weren't very good at collecting that particular species. Maybe they moved because of some sort of seasonal change that we don't know about. You know, maybe there's just in low enough numbers that we weren't successful at capturing them. So it's really hard to know the moment at which a species actually goes extinct. There's very few cases. You know, the passenger pigeon is one of the few where we knew that that pigeon was in human care. We knew the moment it died and that species went extinct, unfortunately. We don't know that for a lot of other species. And so you see these delisting packages and you think, oh my God, 23 species just went extinct. That wasn't a single event that just happened. That's in some ways the act catching up on the process of, hey, biology has told us over and over that we're not seeing these species in the wild anymore. So administratively, there's going to be a point at which the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has to consider them extinct. I'll also say that many of those mussels had not been captured even before they were listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. But that is the main mechanism we have for trying to protect things is by listing them. So even if we think a species might be extinct before it's even listed, 
it's important that we go ahead and go through that process because there's no way for us to get to recovery if they're never listed just because we're like, eh, they're probably not here anymore. So that was a bit of a headline that was jarring, um, but that biologically was not as jarring as it felt politically. Um, not to say that there's not still plenty of things that should make us take alarm, that should say, hey, we've got some things we need to work on in our rivers and streams. We've got a lot of endangered species, and it is important to recognize that and to try to recover them. But unfortunately, that headline may not have been as important as some others in terms of catching up in terms of what's going on and where are things headed. And also, it's important for me to say, I can't overstate the importance of the US Endangered Species Act. There are many, many cases where species are still here today because of the resources that they've received, because of the funding that comes with a listing on the Endangered Species Act. So it's important that we don't look at something like that and lose hope and say, oh, well, it's not working. We might as well just give up. That's absolutely not true. The Endangered Species Act completely works. It is a very, very important law for the environmental protection we have in the United States. And so don't let the administrative side of things let us lose heart on how important it is to have listed species and to ensure that they get the funding, the mechanisms, the study, the care that they need to actually recover. I appreciate the nuance that you give to that delisting because I think it is a jarring headline. It was meant, and it is still alarming. I mean, it, if we know that we are maybe 30 years behind on those ones that were delisted, what are we saying right now is endangered that is probably also extinct? You know, we can look at it that way, but you know, there's some really uh, interesting success stories in there as well. And so when people are thinking and listening to this and thinking about, you know, how do I both take action and stay hopeful in this work? Um, what advice do you have for people that are listening in? Yeah, that's always a tough question. Um, the, the hope one, I mean, we've all been going through our own cycles of hey, I'm in a really good place. Oh, no, I'm not. And conservation biologists have been doing this for years. I'm going to be honest. Like there's things that we're really excited about um, and there's things that are depressing. But I know that for me, it was really important actually to leave universities, to leave ac academia and actually come to the aquarium where I could be hands-on and taking action on things. And that's one of the things I love most about the Tennessee Aquarium is that we're not just going to study a species to death. We're going to start to say, hey, there's something we can do differently. Um, there's ways you can help us in that process. And that I think is really important that when you start to feel despair, think about where can you actually make a difference. And so I'm going to skip over some of the easy ones that we've all heard before and because we know them and, and we need the reminders. But again, think about your plastic use. Think about all those sort of things. Bottled water, that's a no-no. Definitely bring your own reusable water bottle. So we know all of those. But one that I really like to talk about, especially to listeners for the Cumberland River Compact, is think about what your water footprint is at your house. And the way I like to think about it is if you are in the middle of a massive rainstorm, take a walk around your property and look at where water is leaving your property. And then see if there's something you can do to actually stop that. Because the biggest problems we have for our rivers and streams right now is just basic runoff. It's not factories. It's not industry. You know, we've all been pointing our fingers at them still and being like, oh, the river is so dirty because of those industries. The Clean Water Act actually took care of that. Our water has not been cleaner 
you know, the 1930s, our water was polluted then. Absolutely. But these days, the water pollution that we see in our rivers is coming from us, from small everyday activities. And so what that means is that the small everyday activities that we do, we need to try to think about how to change what those are. So again, when it's raining on your property, take a walk around your property and look at where water is leaving and then figure out, is there a way I could stop it? And so you'll notice there's a lot of, of water that falls on your roof. And so you need to trap that. That. You can use a rain barrel and you're actually stopping all the water so it's not running off and carrying all those things that fell on your roof with it. And again, if you're looking at your property, if water is flooding down your driveway, maybe that's when you think about, huh, is there any sort of, uh, you know, can I plant anything along the driveway to try to trap the water before it hits the driveway? Is there anything I can do to slow any of that down? Think about the slopes here. You know, all of that matters. You're going to need landscape architects and engineers if you have a good deal of property here. But again, it's that basic idea of if I slow water down, it's not going to run off and carry all those with it as it's running off. So that's one of the first things that I really advise people to do. Another thing is just being aware. You know, we've talked a lot about a ton of different fish species that are here. I can't tell you how many people we've pulled up to their property, asked them permission to sample the creek behind their house, and they've said, oh, there's no fish back there. And we're like, oh, well, do you mind if we look? They're like, you can look, but there's no fish. And we come back 20 minutes later and we've caught 20, 30 different species of fish and they're stunned. And so just recognizing that the water that's all around us has a lot of life. If it's a river stream that's there all the time, there's, I guarantee you there's fish that live in it. If it's just ephemeral, if it's a pond that you see that develops for about a month every spring, there's probably amphibians that are laying their eggs in that pond. And so just that recognition of there's things that live in our water. It sounds very basic to say it that way, but just the recognition that we're sharing our water with a ton of different species is really important. If you're curious about what species live near you, we have a tool, it's called the Freshwater Information Network. Uh, you can find it at tenacifin.com. And the Freshwater Information Network shows you all the fish species that are found in the Mobile, the Tennessee, and the Cumberland River drainages. And so you can actually get to different species. You can see where they're found. You can figure out what's living in your backyard. You can learn more about them. You can figure out if you've got river chubs nearby. So being really aware that, hey, there's life out there and telling other people that just as a reminder that it is important that we actually take care of what's around us. There are animals out there. Of course, being part of this um, means about thing, thinking about things like litter. Any, you know, we, we do have a litter problem here in the Southeast. It is a, a downside of our culture. And so we do try to be thoughtful that if we're out at a creek, we're going to leave it in better better spot than we found it. And so it, it sounds very basic, like some of the other advice I give. Um, but taking a trash bag with you, if you're out enjoying a local stream, please leave it a little bit cleaner than you found it. We would appreciate that. The animals would as well. And then the last thing is just being a member of the Cumberland River Compact, of the Tennessee Aquarium. There's a ton of other local watershed groups working in your area. So your membership dollars do help us do the work that we do, but they also help give us a voice. And so if we're fighting for something, having that membership behind us saying, these are all the members who are on board with us and concerned about the same situation, 
is as important as the funding. So they both clearly matter, um, but having those people represent, having their voice represented through these organizations is really important to our freshwater conservation. So the moment you're feeling a little bit of, you know, despair, there's some easy things you can do. You can take a trash bag, you can go pick up some litter, you can get some friends involved with you. You can make sure you've got friends who are joining your local watershed groups, join the Tennessee Aquarium. Um, these are great gifts for coming up on the holiday season. So if you're worried about supply chain, I'll let you know that memberships to these organizations are not limited by the supply chain. So really thoughtful gifts that you can give to others as well. Couldn't have said any of that better myself. So thank you. And I love the way that all of those actions really reiterate sort of the acting locally, thinking globally, you know, really thinking about how can you, what you can do, how you can support organizations in your own backyard and how you can learn about your own backyard and then, you know, build up to thinking about globally as well. So Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. This has been a fascinating conversation. I have so many species of fish I need to learn more about now. So I appreciate that. Thank you again for, for joining us. Thank you to Dr. Anna George for joining the River Talks podcast. If you would like to learn more about what was mentioned in this episode, visit our blog at Cumberland River compact.org slash blog. You can also help support our podcast by making a donation at cumberlandrivercompact.org slash donate.